Today's text is in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 in the New Testament. Please read along in your Bible or open up your app in your phones. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there is a Bible in the front of your pew, and it's on page 979. And I invite you, please, to read along with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lori. All right, so we're going to be doing something a little different by having the kids in here. I'm really excited to have you, kids and uh, parents. I pray that God would give you grace to hang on to them if they're not used to being here. I know that I feel stressed out of my mind with my three in the front and and how wiggly they are. But did you know that when the Bible was written, it was written um, filled with different letters And one of the letters was written to a church called Ephesus. And when the Bible was originally written, it was written to a whole group of people. And so they would read it to a mixed group of people of young and old and kids and grandparents. And so just like the Bible does that, I'm going to do that right now. And the first part of this passage that we're talking about, kids, is directly to you. But before I get there, I want to ask you guys, do you know... When I got in the worst trouble in my life, the worst. Well, if you know me, actually, my kids know me and they don't even know this story. Elijah's excited to hear, hear it. When I was six, year old, six years old, it was the worst trouble I ever got in my life. I don't know about you, but growing up, my, I had a fascination with fire. And my parents told me, don't play with fire. But if you're like me, you know better than your parents. And I thought I knew better than my parents because I played with matches. I watched TV. I can handle fire. And so one day I grabbed my friend Michael and we started playing with fire. We started off with just burning little sticks and seeing how they burn. And we, you know, maybe got some magnifying glass and burned some ants and different things like that with fire. And then we burned some leaves. And eventually we got really excited. We started burning this bush. Now, what I didn't realize as a little kid is that, that uh, it was very dry and the entire bush caught on fire. And I'm not talking about like, you know, a little poinsettia right here, but entire bush, like I felt like I was Moses and there was a huge fire ball in front of me. And because we're smart, my friend Michael and I just ran. We ran away. That's called sarcasm, kids. I ran away from the fire and I hid in some, another bush that was not on fire with my friend Michael. Now, we lived in an apartment place and a man who was a maintenance man was driving around, and he pulled to the side and ran over and tried to put the fire out. He couldn't do it. And eventually, the fire started getting so big that it started touching the building, and the building started getting black and dark, and we thought the building was going to catch on fire. Now, this was an apartment building, and so there was tons of people who lived there. Eventually, a giant fire truck came, and they put the fire out, and we were hiding in the bushes, and we finally came out. And I remember the police came, too, and they pulled me to the side, and they, say, they said this to me. Son, 
you are now on the blacklist. We're going to keep an eye on you. And I remember being so scared and so sad, I went and just cried my eyes out in my bed. And do, do you know the story, honey? I've already told you. I can't believe I haven't told you this. And my friend Michael was not allowed to play with me for a long time, and he was grounded for very, a lot of months. Now, there's a lot of points to that story, but one of the points I want to highlight is, like, if you're like me, you grew up challenging your parents all the time. Like, ah, I don't think you're right, Mom and Dad. I think I know better. And because you're like me, and we're all like that at some level, thinking we know better than our parents, God gave us this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Did I tell my dad? Well, my dad was right there. My dad, my dad knew, trust me. I felt his knowledge, if you know what I'm saying. He knew. Um, but I had a little trick as a kid. If I wanted my parents not to discipline me, I would cry so hard that they felt so bad for me that they would back off. That was one little slimy trick I did, but it didn't always work. Let me, let me say a couple things to you, children, okay? First, God created you. Eden, Elijah, God created you. And other kids back there that I don't know your name yet, Forrest, God created you. And because he created you, he owns you. And you ought to listen to him. But he also loves you. He cares about you. He's crazy about you. He loves you so much that every bad thing you've ever done, he gave you an opportunity to be forgiven because his son, Jesus, who never did anything bad, died for all of your sins. Everything bad you did, Jesus died for. And because God wants the best for you, he gave you parents. And these parents are imperfect. They make mistakes. Do we make mistakes, Elijah? A lot of times? Yeah, all right. You should, you should have said sometimes. And sometimes we don't. Okay. So a lot of times we make mistakes, he says, and sometimes we don't. So it sounds like we just make mistakes a lot. Yes or no? All right, that's good. But in general, even though we're imperfect, parents in general who want the best for your, your kids. And God has commanded you to honor and obey them. Now here's something that's really crazy, kids. What the Bible says here is that you should obey your parents, not because they're smarter than you. They are. Eventually you may be smarter than them. Or not because they're stronger than you are. They're probably stronger than you right now. But because he says... The way you obey them is the way you obey me, which is crazy. If you want to obey God, Elijah, Eden, Forrest, and others, you obey God. You obey your parents. Now, the opposite is true, too. If you disobey your parents, you're disobeying God. It's crazy that he made it that way. Now, let me give you a couple of reasons why he did this. Number one. The Bible says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's what God has called and made things. This is the natural design of the world. If all the kids in the world did not listen to their parents, then this whole place would be on fire, and we would be in absolute chaos. Kind of exaggerating, but partly right. Number two, it pleases God. When you trust God and obey your parents, even when they do things that are silly, and even though your parents do things that are kind of wrong, and you still obey him and love them, you are ultimately saying, God, I love you, and I'm going to listen to you even if I don't understand why my parents are doing what they're doing. Number three, the Bible promises you'll have a better life. It says this, honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise, and you will have a long life on the earth. 
God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have a great life. And if you obey your parents, you are more likely going to live in a life that is full of blessing. Number four, and this is really important, God is training you to obey Him through your parents. As you practice obeying your parents, you are learning to ultimately obey God, who you cannot see yet. And so kids, let me say a few things to you before I wrap it up. You're going to fail sometimes in obeying your parents. I know I did. I was not a good kid growing up. My parents, God bless them, they had their hands full of me. But when you mess up, do you know what you do? You go to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I'm not as perfect as you are. Would you please forgive me? And if you trust him, he will forgive you. And you can come to Jesus, just like I have to come to Jesus, because I don't always honor my parents well, even today. And I hope you have great hope that Jesus, he was a child too. He had to listen to his mom and dad, and he perfectly listened to them and followed them. He never did a bad thing, never thought a bad thing. And God loves him, and because he loves him, and because he, he accepted Jesus' life, you can have his perfect life too. And if you feel like you've disobeyed your parents and you have not honored them well, you can go repent to them and ask for forgiveness, and I'm confident they're going to receive you. And finally, as I dismiss you kids, I want you to know that I'm going to start talking to the parents now. They're, they're on the hook too, okay? I'm not just getting on you kids. Now we're going to be talking to the parents. And the Bible says a lot more about what the parents should do than just what the kids should do. Okay? So we love you. You guys can go now downstairs with Mr. Steve and TK and maybe Caleb. Yep. We love you guys. Thanks for being here with us. Bye. Bye. I love you. All right. I want to make a comment on that. It's essential for us as a community to be advocate, advocates for all the parents in our church, advocates for the kids, and to support their authority and encourage their authority, provided it's being biblical, but also advocates in protecting our kids. So if we in our community see any parents abusing their authority, we need to have the love and the humility and the boldness to be able to come alongside and talk with those individuals. We want to protect the kids in our church. And authority is, is good, but often abused. And so we need to be advocates for the kids and encourage one another and also support their parenting and keep people in check if they abuse their authority. And I do want to say this. If you, have any, if you during this message, feel conviction that you haven't honored and obeyed your parents as you have ought to, and you've never repented to them, I'd really encourage you to do that. I, only time tells. I just have memories that come to my mind of how much, much I messed up with my parents and how important it is to repent to them. Okay, now, I kind of jump gears for the kids' sake, but I'm going to go back now. We are back in our series of Ephesians. We're about to finish it. And you remember the first three chapters is talking about all these beautiful, beautiful things that God has done for us. And then in the very last half of the letter, chapter 4 through 6, he's saying, you know what? He doesn't change anything. He doesn't, he doesn't change the whole gears of the, the letter. What he's saying, because these things are true, this is how you should live. So they're 
directly connected, but they're a lot more practical. So really, the driving question of our section today is, if God is really real, and if he really did what he did, how should we live as a family? What, what would a Christian family, family now look like? Okay, so that's the driving question in this section. What would a Christian family now look like? And what we're going to actually do, there's a, there's a slide that has a number of chains, uh, a chain of passages, starting Ephesians 4.1. That's how it starts off. It's in another slide section, by the way. I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he is called. So, starting off, he has given us a calling. You should live in a way that is worthy of that calling. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate God. Sorry, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Then in verse 15, he takes one more step and say, hey, look carefully how you walk. And one of the ways you do that is verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. And then finally, in verse 21, he says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? So I say all this to say, our section today is expressing what does it look like to submit to one another in a family? Okay? Because part of being filled with the Spirit is appropriately submitting to the right people. Now, I want to make one comment about my age. I'm going to be talking about parenting. And the reality is, I am not the oldest in this room. I still have pimples. I'm 30 years old. I have four children. One is cooking in the oven, and the other three were right here. And I have gobs of things I do not know. I was a youth pastor for a number of years, so I picked up some tips there. But I'm going to try my best to stick as closely as I can to the Bible. And any extra things, I'm going to try to pull from other wiser people. And, and I will do my best. But I, I do want to push against the mindset that you can only speak to something helpfully if you've experienced it. I think that's a fallacy. People do have eyes. They can observe realities. And the reality is, the person who wrote the book of Ephesians didn't have kids. And so we have, if we go under the fallacy that, oh, I only listen to people who had the exact same experience, then we're going to really shoot ourselves in the foot. So I, I, I want to make that qualifier to say that I, I don't know everything about parenting, but I'm trying to learn, and I've learned some things, and I want to give you what I can, but I want to give you the word as much as possible. Also want to address those in here who are not parents. Why the heck should you listen to me if you're not a parent here? Because I'm looking at least a handful. And for whatever reason, we're missing like a third of our, or half of our singles tonight. I don't, maybe they, they caught wind of what we're doing. Well, here's a couple reasons why you should listen. One, because you are called to disciple parents and kids too. What I mean by that, whether you get married or not, and whether you have kids or not, you are called to help disciple us. You are called to help disciple me. And even if you do not have kids, you can help disciple me. So you need to know what the Word is calling me to do as a father. We need to help disciple one another and encourage one another. And it takes a tribe to raise a kid, and so even if you don't have kids, you are here to help uh, disciple my kids also and other kids in our community. Another thing is you may be a parent one day, so you don't know, so you should probably listen ahead of time. And finally, these commands and what it talks about, uh, about parenting tells us a picture, shows us a picture of what God is like. Ultimately, it's a glimpse of his heart, and that's who we want to know, ultimately. All right, so to start off, 
the passage starts off and it says it addresses father. I'm going to skip the kids because I already addressed the kids. We're going to spend a lot of time speaking to parents. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Why is he addressing fathers first? Now, I'm not sure, but I I do want to say a couple of things. Is that he's for sure not only talking to fathers. He's both talking, both talking to both parents. Why do I say that? Because what did the previous verse say? It says, honor your father and your mother, right? So it's not saying that mothers are not important, but I think he's calling the fathers out on the carpet. He's calling them out because if you look at the history of mankind and the history in the Bible, men have a tendency to be passive. That is one of the great sins of men. And so Adam was with Eve, Eve is being tempted, and he's just letting a talking snake talk to his wife. And that that kind of same propensity to passivity is something that many men have inherited also. So I think maybe that's one. I'm kind of reading to that. I also think that as a man, man is the head of the household, and as the man leads and lovingly cares for his family, so the family goes. And sociologists would agree with me. Look at any statistic. Families that do not have a father, a loving father who's present increasingly high chances for abuse and for trafficking, sex trafficking, and for prison, and for every statistic that you would not wish upon your child is increased tenfold if there's not a father that's lovingly present in the home. So I think Paul is explicitly calling out the fathers because a lot of times, historically speaking, we've seen fathers shrink back when there's responsibility. And many, many God-fearing, strong mothers have had to bear the, 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 the responsibility of a whole family on their own shoulders. And that is a sad thing, but a commendable thing for those women's who, women who stuck it out. And we have some in our church right now. So praise God for His grace upon you. And so, He's addressing fathers and mothers, but I think He's especially calling out fathers. Now, it's important to understand the context of fathers in this culture. I want to read something to you. It's going to be on the screen. Fathers back then were not like fathers today. The power of fathers was almost unlimited in the Greco-Roman world. They determined whether a newborn baby had the right to live or die. And many baby girls in particular were abandoned to die. Fathers could and did sell their children, especially girls, into slavery. They could punish them as harshly as they wished, work them hard, or even put them to death. Public opinion served as restraints, and real family love was common, but the abuses are chronicled. Ecclesiasticus, which is in the Apocrypha, is representative of attitudes in the ancient world. Here's one verse. It says this, A father who loves his child will whip him and beat him often while he is still a child. A father should not pamper his son, play with him, or share in his laughter. Isn't that so sad? And although this is not the case of every father in every home, this was widespread. This context is important to understand because what Paul is about to speak is absolutely countercultural. I'm just curious, is my mic on? You guys can hear me? All right, good. I started to increase my voice to, to compensate, so good. All right, look at Ephesians 6.4, please. It starts off by saying this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We'll stop there. Whenever we see a command in Scripture, it's usually there because the default natural tendency is the opposite of that Scripture. 
So, if that is in the Bible, it's implying that what would be the default, natural, easy thing for fathers to do? To provoke their children to anger, to exasperate their children. It's very easy for fathers to get frustrated, ah, I can't believe you, to their kids. And so Paul is calling them out in this. I like how the New International Version says it. It says this, fathers do not exasperate your children. Note the beauty of this passage. God cares how children feel. He cares how they feel. He wants fathers to love and care for their kids in such a way that does not, exa- that does not exasperate them. That's a beautiful thing, that God is not like others who are like, oh, children are not important. They're not, they don't have jobs. They don't pr- pr- produce anything. No, no, he cares how they feel, so he's calling out fathers to care. What does it mean to provoke your children or exasperate them? Well, let me say this. Children have a built-in sense of justice. And they know when you're flying off the handle and it's over and over the top. They know when you're just being cruel. They know when you're just being vindictive. Here, here are ten, or not ten, but here are a few steps if you want to exasperate your children. I got this from a pastor named Tony Marita. They're going to be on the screen. Here's one, failing to take into account the fact that they are kids, comparing them to others, disciplining them inconsistently, failing to express approval even at small accomplishments, failing to express our love to them, disciplining them for reasons other than willful disobedience and defiance, pressuring them to pursue our goals, not their own, withdrawing love from them, or overprotecting them, a.k.a. helicopter parenting them. Those are some great ways to exasperate or provoke your children to anger. Here are a couple other things. Sometimes we correct kids not because what they're doing is sinful, but because we just have preferences. And maybe it's just cultural. And what we can fail in is that we spend so much of our parental capital trying to get them, oh, I don't like that music, it's too loud, or I don't like the way you dress, or I don't like the way you do that, or oh, sit up straight, oh, stop slouching, right? right? Stop chewing with your mouth open, all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying we, we should let our kids do that, you know, there, there's a place for that. But we spend so much time just trying to mold our kids to be exactly the way we like them that we have no capital left to help them really care about the things that matter. It's something we all parents need to be careful with, and future parents, or help me do this, is that we're not trying to mold our kids into our preferences, but we care about what truly is moral and right. Here's, here's a quote that, from a pastor in the UK. He says this, There is, of course, a massive difference between children being childish, which loving parents will tolerate patiently, and disobedient, which loving parents will not. And also a big difference between a child's spirited energy, which needs to be encouraged, and a child's stubborn willfulness, which needs to be tamed. And it takes wisdom to discern. And I found myself, on a number of occasions, more than I am proud of, getting mad at Elijah or Eden for doing something that's just them being kids. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you're being disobedient. You're not respecting God. Don't you read the Bible, right? And it's really just about me. Here's another thing. We, we can exasperate our kids by generalizing consequences instead of customizing them. Generalizing consequences instead of customizing. This is very hard if you only have one child, but if you have multiple children, 
you can start to see that everyone is wired differently. And we do great injustice to our children, and maybe your parents did this to you, because we're all children here at some level. Oh, not some, we're all children here. Someone was our parents, even if they weren't in the picture. But sometimes we will do a, hey, if you do this, this is the consequence. When, for that child, maybe another consequence would be a lot more fitting. And we just broad, broad brush and do the same, and it's exasperating for kids. Maybe a better way to ask and think about parenting in those circumstances is asking this simple question. Holy Spirit, what are you trying to work on my child right now? Because the reality is, my kids have a whole bunch of things they need to work on. Me too. And it becomes very, very frustrating for my kids if I dump, hey, Elijah, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. And him just walking away feeling like, my daddy doesn't love me. I'm never good enough for my dad. But but rather, being in line with the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to work on my child right now in this season? How can I partner with what you're already doing and help him grow in these areas? That's a way to combat that reality. Now, Paul, he starts off negatively. and says, do not provoke your children to anger. And then he said, but rather instead do this. Bring them up. Now, before we go into that, I think it's important for us to understand what is the goal of biblical parenting? What are we trying to do, parents? What are we doing here? Just trying to keep them alive? There's some days I feel like that. Just just keep them alive, honey. Let's just keep them alive and breathing, right? That, That is a goal that's important. You want your kids to live physically. But what's the ultimate goal besides just sheer survival and getting them out of our home? Well, here are two goals that I can think of biblically. First, parents, second to marriage, parenting our children can be one of the most powerful illustrations of the gospel and a reflection of who God is. Every day, I have an opportunity to show the world what God the Father is like in the way I parent my kids and love them. That is a beautiful, powerful reality, which is also very haunting and scary because it's the opposite. If if I am not careful, I could be giving the world and my kids a terrible picture of who God the Father is. And many of us, maybe in our congregation, I know a lot of our stories, you struggle thinking about God as a father because you had such a terrible father. And they have failed in their their task to give you an accurate picture of who God is. Here's the second purpose I can think of in the Bible. I love how this one pastor and author puts David Platt. He says this, The goal of biblical parenting is not to help your children get a great education, be a great athlete, go on great dates, have a great career, or make great money, which is all good, by the way. The goal of biblical parenting is to help your kids accomplish a great commission. God says to his people, you raise your children to know me and love me, to serve me, and to glorify me with their life. You raise them to make my glory known in all the world. Is that what is driving our parenting? Really? Really, when it gets down to it, is that what is driving our parenting? We might even say, well, I'd like for it to, I, I, I think it is, but look at how we're leading our children. Is this driving our parenting? So to put it simply, parents, the goal of biblical parenting, I believe, is for us to show what God is like to our kids and to the world by the way we parent, and also to raise up our kids to be sent out as disciple makers. 
Joanna and I, by God's grace, were surpri- was surprised by the, the birth of our first son, Elijah. And the way I viewed children was so bad that I don't know how, we may still have not had kids if it was up to me. Because in my mind, kids were a burden. Kids made me lose sleep. Kids made my life hard. Kids limited my freedoms. Kids limited my Netflix time, whatever it was. And so when, I, when we first started having kids, I was like, oh my gosh, my life is over. I now have to adult and I have to do all this kind of stuff. And I complain and complain. And the reason why I did is because I thought the goal of parenting was just getting your kids to get out of the house. Just get them to survive. Or just get them to be a Christian. But what I did, what I failed into understanding, is my view of children was so little. And God had to elevate my view instead of viewing them as the goal was just to get them to be a Christian. Or to be nice kids. Or to obey. But to make disciples. And as you guys know, we're expecting our fourth child and our third girl, by the way. We're expecting a girl. We just found out last week. And part of me still is like, oh, four kids. Four kids. Can we do this? Can we do four kids? But what God has been speaking to me, he spoke to me this week through this text as I was preparing. He said, Sam, that's one more disciple maker you got. That's one more arrow you're going to just shoot into the world. And so parents, let's elevate our view of parenting and think, I'm training up a warrior for Christ. I'm training up a game changer, a world changer. Not just a burden, but a blessing. They will feel like a burden, for sure. But if we do it right by God's grace, they will be a blessing to the nations. Parents, you are the primary disciple makers of your children. Please partner with other people, but do not dump your responsibilities to other people. If you're going to pursue lots of child care and all kinds of means of grace like that, like school and daycare, that, that can be fine. But make sure you are the primary disciple makers. Don't farm that out to other people. You can use them. You can partner with them, which is great. But make sure you're the primary ones. Now, let's get to the command. He says this, bring them up. Bring them up. This phrase has intentionality written all over it. Bring them up. Listen, we cannot be passive about parenting. We cannot merely pray and hope for the best. If you do not parent your kids, the world will. Seriously, the world will if you do not parent your kids. This phrase, actually, if you read it in the original language, it's a lot more tender than the English can come off. John Calvin, he actually translated it this way. Let them be fondly cherished. Isn't that beautiful? Fondly cherished. Remember the context of this culture. Kids are a nuisance. Let them be seen but not heard kind of mindset. And yet Paul said, no, cherish your kids. You know the only other time this word bring them up in the original language is used in the whole New Testament? It's Ephesians chapter 5 verse 29. nourishes and cherishes. That's the kind of language fathers and mothers are supposed to have with their kid, a nourishing heart, a cherishing heart. And maybe that's kind of why, another reason why Paul's highlighting fathers because women genetically and in general are disposed to be more nourishing. I'm not, I'm not saying everyone, there's outliers, but typically women are more nourishing. And so he's speaking to all these hardened men. Men, 
Nourish your children. Be tender towards them. Cherish your children. I love how the message puts it, the message commentary or paraphrase. It says this, fathers, don't exasperate your children by coming down hard on them. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. I love that. Take them by the hand. You're guiding them. You're not just throwing them out to figure it out on their own. So we bring them up or nourish them in what? What is it you're nourishing them in? Well, the next part of the verse says this. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of the who? Of the me? Of the Lord. Not me, the Lord's discipline, the Lord's instruction, which is where I get it wrong all the time. Ultimately, the concern of parents is not simply that their sons and daughters will be obedient. Here's a quote from Peter O'Brien, by the way. Ultimately, the concern of parents is not simply that their sons and daughters will be obedient to their authority, but that through this godly training and admonition, their children will come to know and obey the Lord himself. Isn't that good? That's good. And it's so important that we bring them up appropriately Because if we don't, we are training them ultimately not to be able to listen and submit to bosses, to coaches, to different structures in the world, and most importantly, to God. If you let your kids run wild and you do not discipline them in a godly, appropriate way, you are training them up to rebel against God. Because every heart is prone to rebellion and prone to autonomy, and if you do not help them in that, they are going to be set up to want to rebel against God more than they're even nature, by nature set up to be. I hope that scares you a little. That, that's, that's intense. Now, it's important for us to have a discussion real quick, the difference between godly discipline versus punishment. Godly discipline versus punishment. Now, I, 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 am, I know you can use this word punishment in a good way, but I want to use it in a negative way. And this is what I mean. Godly discipline... Is focuses focused on loving the child. Punishment, on the other hand, is focused on getting even. How dare you, kid, do this? I'm going to get even. Godly discipline is focused on shaping the heart, addressing the heart, while punishment just merely wants to modify behavior so you don't inconvenient me or dishonor me in front of the public. It's vastly different in motivation and also in manner. And the reality is the majority of us here were punished growing up and not disciplined, which is very, very sad. Look how God disciplines. This is ultimately points to God's character. Look at Proverbs 3, 20, 12. Sorry, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. What's the motivation of the father's discipline? Love, delight. Not inconvenience. Not, you're making my life hard, kid. So get your stuff in order because you're making my life hard. No, it's, I love you and I want good for you. See, godly discipline for the Christian is rooted in the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. The Lord does not treat us as we deserve. He does not treat us as we deserve. You want justice? You want Fair, we all die. That's fair. But God in his mercy has granted us forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel teaches us we don't get what we deserve, and therefore we must parent from that place. 
And this is really hard because the closer you are to someone, the more power you have to wound them. And our kids have the power to wound us deeply. And our kids can say some really, really harsh things that make us want to go crazy. You know what I'm saying, parents? They have the power to do that. And that's why we have to go back to the gospel over and over again. There's a quote from Chip Ingram that I want to read to you because it's so valuable. I want them to understand that the only way to make right what they did is to trust when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for their sins. It makes no sense for me to fellowship with God on the basis of mercy and with my children on the basis of judgment. Since Jesus took the punishment, my role as a parent is not to punish them. My role is to provide appropriate consequences and instruction to help them see how their behavior displeases God and to teach them how to cooperate with God's work in their lives. The Bible calls this discipline. Are you following me? This is so important. This is so poor. Oh, God, would you help all of our parenting in our church be disciplined and not punishing? If you want to know if you strayed from godly discipline rooted in the gospel, addressing a kid's heart, here are some statements that you might have heard come out of your mouth lately. And I'm guilty. How dare you? What were you thinking? I'm going to teach you a lesson. Or maybe if if you want to get crazy, I brought you in this world, I can take you out, right? Maybe maybe no one says that anymore. Maybe that's just a TV thing. But rather, you know what a good statement to come out of your mouth is? Oh, no. Oh, no. My, My kid does something terrible, and my reaction isn't, how dare you, but oh, no. Because, see, see, the difference in the posture of the heart that says, oh, no, is I want good for you. And, oh, no, that's bad. And I want to help you. And I want to love you. And I want to serve you. And it's not shame coming from you, but sadness, remorse, care for the person. Parents, let's replace our language from vindictive, vengeful language to, oh, no, let me help you. Let me, let me take you by the hand to Jesus in this. Here here are a couple of guidelines for disciplining your children. These aren't conclusive and they're not perfect, but here are some helpful ones. Here's 10. There are many tools in the tool belt of discipline. There are many tools, not just one, not just one. There are many tools, and you need to know your children and you need to know the occasion to know what's appropriate at that time. Number two, connected, each child is different. Number three, discipline should be only done by parents or guardians. We don't discipline other kids that are not ours. Four, ideally, discipline should be administered with the collaboration and blessing of both parents. The key is ideally, because we have, what, close to half of American families without fathers. Number five, discipline should be consistent. It shouldn't be one day uh, you administer discipline for this one action in this manner, and then another day it's completely different. It needs to be consistent. Number six, discipline should never be done out of vengeance. You're not trying to get even with a kid. You're not trying to do that. You're trying to help them. Number seven, discipline should be carefully considered and not reactive in anger. Should not be spur of the moment. It should be controlled. There should be an end. You shouldn't be making audibles on the fly as you do it, as your emotion deems you to do. 
Number eight, discipline should be appropriate with the transgression. Number nine, any form of physical discipline should be extremely restrained and should never harm the child. We're not trying to harm children. We're trying to instruct them, help them. Number 10, and I know number nine can be extremely controversial, and I'm not going to unpack everything right here, but if you want to talk about that, I'd, be, I'd love to talk with you about this more. Number 10, the goal should be shepherding their heart and restoring them to you and to God. Remember, we need to train our kids to be restored to God too, not just us, if they wrong us. So let's ask this question. How can we disciple our children? And not in any particular order. Number one, here's one. It takes a tribe to, to disciple our kids. Let, let's use the blessing of a community. Let's lean in to other people. Let's care for others. Singles, care for my kids. Help Elijah love Jesus. Help him love his sisters well. And I don't want to be selfish, but I'm just speaking for my kids. Help disciple each other's kids and encourage them in Jesus. Sometimes you can say something that parents have been saying for years, and the kid's are like, oh, I've never heard that before. You guys know what I'm saying? And I did that all the time as a youth pastor. I would go up to parents and say, hey, parent, um, can you tell me something you've been telling your kids? And when I say it, they're just going to believe it, even though they're not believing you. And they're like, oh, yeah, this. And I would do that, and exactly that's what happened. The kids would be like, oh, that's amazing, Sam. The parents are like, what? I've been telling you that for years. Be advocates for each other. Number two, get around healthy parenting. There, in our culture, is, there are certain things that are taboo that you never talk about. You don't talk about marriage with each other. You don't talk about money. You don't talk about sex. You don't talk about things like that. And parenting is one of those no-nos. You never talk to each other about parenting. Unless, unless it gets really, really bad. That's when you can say something. And guys, parenting is super hard. You're raising a human being. Come on. And we spend more time studying how to do our hobbies and our careers than we do raising up a human being. And I just want to have a culture where we can just freely encourage one another. And, and, and you can't have the whole church speaking into your family. But I encourage you to invite your DNA group or maybe your missional community and some trusted people in the church to speak in, to bring observations, to ask questions, to encourage you, to teach you. If you're a new parent or soon-to-be parent, ask older parents. Say, hey, can I get around you while you do things with your kids? I want to learn. I want to watch you do it. I want to put your kids down. I want, I want to see you do all these things, and let's rub off on each other so we can have the, the healthiest parenting possible. Number three, this is the most important one, though. If you want to disciple your kids, live the way of Jesus. What I mean by that is this. More is caught than taught in parenting. More is caught than taught. How many of you guys have found yourself doing things that you swore you would never do that you, your parents do? Anybody? One person, two people. Oh, my goodness. Okay, all right, more hands. I will never be like that with my dad. And then I find myself doing the same thing with my kids. So much is internalized and absorbed by just sheer being around the culture of your family. And so it's very, very important the kind of culture we set in our homes. Our kids absorb it. And I found my kids complaining with the same kind of whining tone that I do at times. I'm like, oh, that sounds like me. Or that sounds like Joanna. And I've also seen my kid pray out loud a lot because he sees his daddy pray out loud all the time at home. They catch it. And here's maybe a a pretty hard question is this. Do you want your children to imitate you? Do you want them to be as godly as you are? Because how godly you are is often how the, what's going to influence them most in their life. 
And here's something important. I've heard other people preach about this, and they say, hey, make sure you're, you're part of a, a, a great church. Attend a great church for your kids. And that's important. But it's important that we don't just relegate Jesus into certain corners of our life. And if you live a life of Christianity where you go to church and then you check it off and you go home and you live like the world right when you're home and you maybe do Bible study or things like that, but Jesus isn't, isn't all about you and isn't everywhere, your kids are going to do the same thing. They're going to check off and then compartmentalize. I'm a Christian at church. I can do this and God is happy. They are going to catch it if you are absolutely in love with Jesus and he is everything to you. They will smell it. They will internalize it. They will catch it by God's grace. When you look at the passage in Deuteronomy 6-7, it, it's not just like have a de- devotional every day, which is good, but it's, it's this. Look at Deuteronomy 6-7. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you are on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. See, that's what Jesus did when he discipled his kids. He let Christianity, he let following and loving the Father be embodying in everything of life. While they ate, while they played, while they cried, while they experienced things in life. Bring Jesus into everything. And if you can't do that, you're going to be encouraging your kids to compartmentalize God into little boxes. And number four, pray like crazy. Pray like crazy. Here's a couple of qualifiers that I need to make before we wrap up. One, you cannot save your kids. You cannot save your kids. Spurgeon said this, famous pastor, he said this, some of the worst of men have been the children of godly parents. You guys like that Spurgeon face? Found that for you guys. But you need to hear this, because we cannot put that guilt and that pressure upon our kids. You may be the best parent, and for whatever reason, your kid may turn out not loving Jesus. Now, the reality is, God tends to move, and the Holy Spirit tends to blow upon situations where there's lots of grace. And so what we're doing right now in my kids, I don't know if any of my kids are loving Jesus yet. I know they act like at times, they say certain things, I'm not sure yet. But what I'm doing is I am just taking as much kindling and surrounding them, like logs and and wood, Bible reading, prayers, godly influences. Charlotte and TK live with us, and they're constantly encouraging them. I'm trying to surround them with preaching, music, all kinds of experiences, and I'm just, just throwing all this wood, and I'm trying to throw gas on it. And by God's grace, I'm praying the Holy Spirit would light it afire, and that they would come to Christ and trust Him. You cannot save your children, but you can you can just throw a ton of stuff at them by God's grace and that hoping that he will catch it. And hopefully that is both humbling and yet freeing because we ought not to hold the pressure of saving our kids. You cannot. You're not the Savior. Last qualifier. The more I grow as a parent and learn how to grow as a parent, the more I'm tempted to judge and criticize my parents. Anybody feel that? Oh, my parents... They didn't do this. Oh, my parents didn't do what I do, my kids. But listen, I'm only going there when I forget the gospel. The only reason why I'm parenting my kids the way I am because of the gospel, because of God's grace upon me. And so if you find your heart moving towards criticism and being judgmental towards your parents, it's because you're forgetting the gospel. 
You don't deserve this. None of us deserve it. It's all grace. All grace. And so let me wrap it up. The number one thing that this passage really is, is getting at is that your family exists for the Lord. Family is not about the white picket fence, although that can be nice, or the nice little home that you could have, and the nice little life you can have, and the PTA places you can go, or whatever, it, PT, what is, whatever, PTA you can be part of, but it's about the Lord. Your family is about the Lord. Exists for the Lord. And children, honor and obey your parents if you want to honor and obey God. And parents, your number one goal in parenting should be discipling your children in Jesus. Let me address a response for us parents. I want to encourage you to receive the gospel afresh. If you have failed in parenting like I have, like my wife have, you can receive the gospel afresh and Jesus forgives you. God forgives you because of what Jesus did. And you're going to fail again. You may fail as you're driving home. God knows how many fights we get while we're driving with our kids. Anyone I'm talking about? And I remember growing up, having memories of my dad going like this. Anyone? Try to swing at us like this. There's something mnemonic about the car on the way to church or away from church, right? And then we just go back to Jesus again. Oh, Lord, I'm not like you. Father, I don't parent like you. I'm not patient like you. Please help me. And he will, and he will, and he will. And as we do, and we keep going back to him, we grow in becoming more like our Father. We, we grow in becoming more gracious like him. And by the Holy Spirit, he can empower us to parent like we can never parent on our own. And maybe some of us parent, parents need to apologize to our children. I apologize to my kids on a regular basis. Elijah, I'm sorry, I lost my temper. Elijah, that was inappropriate the way Daddy spoke to you. Eden, I'm so sorry. I was out of control. I just encourage you, model repentance to your children. If you never repent to your children, either you're perfect, which means you're a liar, or two, you are setting up your kids to never repent themselves, to have this facade that they have everything together. So if you want to teach your kids how to be authentic and transparent and real, practice it, model it by repenting to them when you need to. And finally, commit your kids to the Lord again. Jesus, my kids are yours. Teach me how to disciple them for you. Church, what would it be like if we could raise up an army of disciple makers, even at eight years old? Can you imagine that? Kids who are praying, kids who are laying hands on people and they're getting encouraged and healed from sicknesses or people, kids are sharing the gospel at a young age. I, I long for the day when Elijah opens up something in the Bible. He's starting to read, but he, he can't read this yet really well. And he said, hey, Dad, I saw this in the Bible. I can't wait for that day. What if we had that? What if we did not relegate our kids into the kitty corner? And like, hey, one day you'll be, you, you could pass out flyers at the door. But like, no, 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 you can be disciple makers, kids. I want to raise that up. I want our kids to be known in the city. They'd be evangelists. They can be disciple makers. And I want to wrap up with this. In this room, we have a plethora of different kinds of experiences with fathers. A lot of us have had bad fathers. I know I grew up in a, in a pretty broken home. And I know a handful of you have had absent fathers, either physically or emotionally. And no matter if you had a bad father or a good father, or matter, no matter what, if you've been failing or if you've been crushing it in your parenting, isn't it great news that we have a good father? A father in heaven who is perfect. 
who always loves us perfectly. He's always there for us. He's never flying off the handle. He's patient with us. He disciplines us only because he loves us and he's trying to help us. Isn't that great news that we have that kind of father? I love this one hymn. It's a folk hymn. It goes like this. When I was sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. See, there was a day where all of us in here had a righteous frown shining down on us. God was displeased with us. His wrath was upon us. But because God loved us, he sent his only son who willingly took our place, our wrath, our punishment. So now, those who are trusting in Jesus, all they have is a smile. His face is shining upon his children. And even though your dad may have been frustrated at you all the time, and even though your dad may annoy you and you may have not received love from, from your dad, the Father God, he beams down at you because of Jesus. Not because you're so good, but because of Jesus. And if you want Jesus, you can have him. All you got to do is repent and believe, trust in him, and you can be adopted into this family, and you can have the greatest dad, greatest dad ever. Let's pray. Father, I remember as a kid hanging out with my friends growing up as one of the only minorities in a city and growing up around my other friends who, whose dads were very available and loving and tender and caring. And even though I know my dad loved me and he tried his best with the background he came, I felt so empty at times. And so jealous. And I remember just saying to you as a little boy, I wish my dad was like that. I wish my dad was better. And Lord, even now as a father myself, I fail so often. I so often do the same things that was done to me. And I'm just so thank you, thankful that you adopted me as, as a son. And that you're such a good father. And I want to be a better father. I want to be like you. And I, I pray that we would parent like you, Father, that our church would be filled with people who parent in such a way that the world says, wow, that's what God is like. Help us do that, Lord. Help redeem fathering in our, in our community. And for everyone in here who have a, has a broken relationship with their dad, has deep father wounds because of what the father should have done but didn't do, would you bring healing right now? By your spirit, administer healing. Let them know that you love them unto death. You're not empty in your promises. You keep your promises. You are faithful. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.